0: do now. So, uh, probably the most prevalent tool that the Buddha offered us, uh, certainly the one that has the widest clinical applications right now is the tool of mindfulness, which is a form of observant awareness, where we investigate our experience in the present moment, practicing to have a mind that doesn't add commentary, criticism, resistance, that just takes in what's occurring, observing it as if for the first time, without preconceptions. And the Buddha listed this practice in a sutta called the Satipatthana, which many Buddhists consider to be uh, the most important single teaching of all the thousands of teachings that the Buddha gave. The Satipatthana is, in essence, a teaching where the Buddha outlines how mindfulness is practiced, and he says that, it's the single tool that can lead to awakening. But then he said that about a lot of tools. But <laughs> He was a salesman of his, of his uh, tools. But um, it is a really elegant, uh, self-contained practice that you could devote your entire spiritual life around. And uh, it would be uh, endlessly interesting. And there would be no limits to both the peace and insight that it would provide you. The sutta itself basically outlines the four areas that we practice mindfulness in, observing with fresh eyes that don't prejudge, that don't uh, criticize, that take in experience, uh without a tendency to file away as good or bad, or uh, whatever categories we generally tend to take and experience. Very often we uh, view our lives in terms of self. What does this mean to me? And uh, certainly the Satipatthana discourages that, to say the least. So the four foundations, the four areas that we practice mindfulness within are the first is the body. And that's important because most of our lives we live up in our thoughts and we are constantly taking in the world and we are uh, adding these commentaries and we rely on our narratives and these ideas, these plans, these schemes, these views and opinions to make sense of experience. And so we tend to file away each day in terms of uh, views and opinions we've already Uh, developed in time. So we run into somebody we know, and we tend to go, oh, there's so-and-so, what a pain in the neck, or, oh, I like, this is one of my friends, how wonderful. Uh, So, the encouragement is to first experience life always going into the body and see what is arising in the body, noting the arising and passing of sensation. And so the Buddha is flipping our normal way of perceiving life away from being attached to our thoughts and instead perceiving each moment in terms of what am I experiencing down here. The second foundation of mindfulness is feelings. And feelings also largely play out in the body, but they're different. A body sensation is something that doesn't really change as quickly as feelings do. When you uh, have a pain in your back, that's a body sensation. But if you run into somebody you don't particularly like or you get some bad news and then the stomach gets tight, the chest feels hollow, the shoulders engage, that's a feeling. It's a reaction to something that's happening in the present. So the difference between feelings and body sensation is that the body has uh, its own postures, its own sensations that don't aren't really as reactive to what's going on around us. But when we make contact with things in the world, then we have feelings. Or if we make contact with, Images in the mind, a memory can come up of something we're ashamed about. We can go, yeah, can I do that? Uh, or we could get angry, <laughs> remembering something awful that someone said to us. So those are feelings, noting how we react physically, and sometimes mentally, to the events of our lives. The third quality is examining just the quality of the mind or consciousness itself. Does my mind feel anxious? Does my mind feel tired, sluggish? Does my mind feel very spacious, or does it feel very contracted? Does my consciousness feel uh, very open and receptive, or does it feel closed off? And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is your thoughts. Noticing your thoughts, but not from inside of them, the way we normally live with our thoughts is identifying with them. These are my thoughts. But simply standing aside and observing what kind of thoughts are going on and are they skillful? Are they obsessive? Are they repetitive? Are they angry thoughts? Being able to objectify your thoughts rather than take them as who you are. So this quality of observation, thus, is not... Thought itself—it's something that can observe thought. It's something that can observe the body. It's something that can even observe the mind. It's something that—that that thing that uh, experiences life. Now, in this sutta, what the part I'm going to be talking about tonight is uh, in the sutta there are thirteen refrains where the Buddha, each time he gives a new exercise, he says, "We observe the body." feelings, consciousness, and thoughts, both internally and externally. Internally and externally. And the question for many Buddhists has been, for a long time, what does the externally mean? When I was first uh, practicing decades ago, the externally part was explained to me as, well, that's the skin level and the internally is everything that's going on beneath the skin. Which wasn't a very satisfying answer, but I I went with it. But a new branch of Buddhists had pointed out that actually the earliest interpretation of that line, being observant of the body internally and externally, feelings internally and externally, the mind internally and externally, Consciousness internally and externally is that the externally means, in fact, other people. We're asked to not only be mindful of our experience, but once we do that, to actually use this tool to bring mindfulness into our day to day interactions with others and to observe their bodies as they move, their feelings their mind states, and their thoughts. Now, this brings up a a couple of questions. First, how could we observe somebody else's thoughts if they don't speak them aloud? How could we know what somebody else's consciousness is like? Don't those things seem to be rather internal and beyond our observation? And yet, throughout the canon... The Buddha is referred to as being able to read the consciousness and the thoughts of all the practitioners around him. It was said that through intense awareness, using his sight, his hearing, his ability to discern, and another sense that he had, they said, in some of the suttas, including the adipatheya, And uh, another sutta, Majjhima Nikaya 109, talks about the Buddha reading everybody's mind around him. (laughs) So the question would be, well, how the fuck does he do that? (laughs) (laughs) And this is where modern science comes to our rescue. Uh, What a lot of Wonderful scientists like uh, Alan Shore, uh, u- neuroscientist at UCLA in California, has done a lot of research on the brain's right hemisphere, which is the part of the brain that's largely unconscious, and he's uh, shown through a number of really dense tones, each about four or 500 pages long and really difficult to read, trust me, but uh, what he's, uh, his, the basic thesis of all his clinical studies is that from a very early age, we are monitoring or reading other people's unconscious messages to us. Our right hemisphere is reading other people's unconscious. How do we do this? It is when a baby is, even after about two or three months of age, an infant is reading its mother's glances, the size of her pupils, her body language, and the infant is not listening to the words. the The left hemisphere is doing that, but the right hemisphere is reading all the unconscious body language that a mother would send to an infant as a way to determine and figure out if the mother or the caretaker around the infant is being... Um, uh, loving and attentive and attuned, or whether the mother is upset or about to pull away. And throughout the course of the first two years of life, while there's no language or very little language, the right hemisphere of the brain is developing very rapidly tools to allow us to read other people and to achieve something that neuroscientists now call mentalizing the ability to uh, infer another person's mind state, the ability to know when we're in contact with someone if they're upset, even though they don't want to show it, if they're angry, if they're frightened, the ability to, from the way they involuntarily move their eyes, facial tics, micro-expressions, tones of voice, body language body movement, gestures, we are unconsciously, actually all the time, evaluating other people, looking at them and matching them up against our previous experience. So, for example, when an infant sees the mother smiling and the pupils remain fixed and the body language is soft, the baby knows that the mother is attentive and going to stay present, and it relaxes. But it can also begin to read the very subtle signs that the mother is losing patience and about to pull away. So we do this from a very young age, and we continue doing this throughout our life. It's interesting that the Buddha was said to have had an uncanny ability to do this, to the point where, in many of the suttas, uh, he will say... (laughs) I'll answer your question, and the only problem is nobody's answered asked any question. He's just inferring it from looking at the people around him and reading what their question might be. In the Pali Canon, also, it's very interesting, they don't really give a lot of descriptions often of the people that ask the questions, but they do give a lot of descriptions of the way they move, arrive, and greet the Buddha. It would seem to be not that interesting, but actually um, a lot of the commentaries that were from the Buddha's time on the teachings made a lot of import about when somebody would sit in the Buddha's left or right, whether they would bow or not, whether they would smile at him or not, and apparently... This was used by the monks of the time to discern whether somebody was open to the Buddhist teachings or was hostile, just the way that uh, these little descriptions of body language were used in the Abhidhamma, the commentaries, to describe a great deal about the mind states of the people around us. So there's a lot of, I think... uh, value in the idea of practicing mindfulness, which is, again, putting aside our predetermined views and opinions about ourselves and about the world and opening afresh to each encounter that we have with people and to really take them in in the same way that we investigate ourselves in mindfulness, instead of the normal way we now interact with each other. Picture four people eating dinner, waiting for their food to arrive. Everybody's on their phone. Uh huh. Yeah. Yeah yeah yeah. Okay. Wait. What did you say? You slept with who? Yeah. You did? Oh, good for you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> bump, bump, slept with who? <laughs> 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 Wait, you said what? They did what? Well, fuck them. (laughs) Did you hear it? So what we're doing in so much of of our contemporary form of communication is we're just monitoring people for the words they say. We no longer take in glances. We no longer take in expressions, tones of voice. We prefer to do everything by text. I can't tell you how many people I know that tell me they get. Breaking up with by text. <laughs> Holy shit! <laughs> Talk about avoidance, you know, but uh, people now meet by text, flirt by text. So we're just going, when we do things by text, we're doing everything without any acknowledgement of the body. Any ability to read inflections, tones of voice, glances, anything. We're just going by these dead words on a screen, which is why we have so many misunderstandings. She wrote, um, okay. I said, "What what are you up to? And she said, uh, things are cool. Does that mean she really likes me? <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> and so we have, we have this disembodied form of communication where we're no longer uh, looking to mentalize each other. We're simply looking for the big top headlines that people say. Mm-hmm. The thing that is important enough to pull us away from our Facebook and go back to the phone or to pull us away from our phone and go back in person, or to put aside all the stories and narratives in our head and actually become aware of what somebody's saying. And so, mindfulness in its purest form would be to follow the same order to start with somebody else's body language and then note their feelings, note when something shifts that indicates they're having a reaction. Looking at the... the what do they, does their chest get... Or their stomach get tighter? Does their shoulders become activated? <coughs> does their jaw lock? And then an ability to infer from tone of voice and the use of eyes what the state of consciousness in is is. And then when we listen to finally their thoughts via the words they say, rather than immediately getting caught up in the content and identifying and arguing the points of view and the ideas contained can we actually allow their words and their their thoughts to be investigated from a distance and just looking for patterns oh i notice each time this person is you know going back again and again to uh, an anger statement or a fear statement or a statement about you know uh, what's going to happen in the future, or what something means about their life. So just noticing, in essence, the tendencies or patterns before we get caught up in the thought. This ability uh, allows us to evaluate the people in our lives in a completely different way. It allows us to investigate uh, other people, not in terms of... you know, uh, Are they doing something that makes my life easier or not? From a self-centered perspective. But actually from a perspective of really trying to understand life from another person's embodied perspective. When our entire spiritual practice is internal, we're just sitting there, Oh yeah, I'm doing my mindfulness now, this is great. Yeah, I'm, I'm completely in tune with my feelings. What can happen, though, is we have a practice where we're really aware of what's going on internally, but we lose the sense of recognition that everything we experience is also being experienced by the people around us. I do notice in my work with lots of Buddhists over the years that a lot of Buddhists still have this uh, flavor of taking their feelings and their emotions as if, you know, my feelings are more intense. You know, I know that everybody has sadness, but my sadness (laughs) is very sad. (laughs) Very, very, very difficult and sad. (laughs) My depression. Now, yeah, I know other people have depression, but believe me, my darkness It's like a hue of darkness (laughs) (laughs) that's several things darker than any darkness know. And until we bring this practice external, until we really open to people, not just on the what are they saying level of what are their words, but taking in the body, taking in the feelings, taking in the tone of voice, taking in... What is being expressed? The emotions, what are the emotions being said? Don't get so caught up in the words, but is this, peop- this person just saying they're frightened? Is this person saying they're angry? Is this, what are they trying emotionally to convey? So I find that this kind of mindfulness is the most suitable to day-to-day life. Mindfulness internally is very suitable to when we're at home, or when we have time to practice. But so much of our lives is in contact with other people, in dialogue, interaction. And this is an opportunity to bring our spiritual practice, in fact it's an invitation, to bring our spiritual practice into these interactions, rather than to view, ah, You know, I was meditating here, and then you came in, and now I'm screwed. (laughs) No. The interaction can be an opportunity to continue and practice mindfulness. So, I'd like to give a couple of points in closing that will outline some of the practices that allow for uh, mindful dialogue, mindful interaction to occur. The first is that uh, when we practice mindfulness and in interaction with another person, the first key is to put aside our preconceptions of the other person, whatever we've prejudged them to be know it all, smart, sensuous, loving, whatever however we've filed them away, whatever little tag we have, and we all do this, we all perceive the people around us, and we all bring in a history, as an invitation to put that aside and open in each dialogue, each interaction that we've never met this person before, but that each human being knows something that we don't know, and has experienced things that we've never experienced and has ways of expressing and holding their emotions that are fascinating. And so really, uh, just as my teacher, Tan Jeff, used to say, um, when you're investigating the body, investigate the body like you're a Martian that's landed in a human form, and you've never felt what it's like to be a human being before, and really investigate each sensation from completely afresh. When we do mindfulness Relationally, with other people, pretend that we've never even had a dialogue with a human being before. <laughs> Holy shit! It's a talking gorilla! <laughs> you know? It's, a, it's an animal that can talk. Holy shit! <laughs> and it moves, and it can pay attention, and it can be present. You know, or, or like, we're a Martian, and these are human beings, right? right? And we've never seen a human being before. And what the hell are they? And bring that, you know, bring some kind of freshness. The, in this, it's referred to in the Satipatthana as sampujana, Jhana, which means bare attention, no preconceptions, no ideas, really opening up to what is really being expressed starting noticing their body language, their tone of voice, without, I know what's going on here, just investigate. This requires also the practice of sati, which means remembering again and again and again and again and again, and again to, to stay with the person. And this brings up the second practice, which is a real conviction to stay present. When we're in dialogue, there's so much of the mind that wants to prepare what the fuck we're going to say next. (laughs) Oh yeah, they're talking about something that I'm a real expert in. (laughs) You don't know shit. Wait until I give my point of view. Or B, who the fuck could care about this shit? I've got to steer this towards something I know something about. Or, holy shit, I'm not saying anything. I better say something soon. Uh... To put aside this planning, this preparing, this dropping away from the interaction and trusting in emergence, trusting in spontaneity, trusting that when our time comes that we'll be able to speak, that we don't need to abandon what's being said to go into this inner you know, preparatory landscape. Also, to let go of the need to steer the conversation in any direction. It's like, if you've ever done walking meditation, which uh, is a wonderful practice, Um, done largely on retreats, where people will just walk back and forth, about 10 feet to 15 feet, and the point of walking meditation is not to fucking get anywhere, because believe me, you're going to the same fucking place over and over again. You're like, oops, I'm at the end of the rug. Well, that's fucking swell. I'm going to head back to the... there I am. There I am. So what you do is you slow down, and you don't care about the destination. You just take in each experience that's happening in the present. And likewise, mindful in mindfulness in relation to other beings requires letting go of trying to accomplish something in a conversation, trying to get somewhere, and instead experience the flow of the interaction itself, to be trusting that just the the ability to communicate, not just with words, but with glances and reading other people's body language and their tone of voice is rewarding. The third quality, along with uh, dropping preconceptions and constantly staying present without going into planning or guiding the conversation, is knowing how to uh, diffuse reactivity. Very often in life, something is said or uh, something triggers us. Where we feel the need to defend, feel the need to uh, um, uh stand up for ourselves to explain, justify, and very often in meaningful conversations, people will say things that are difficult to hear at times, and there will be this desire to immediately uh, you know that's not what i said that's not what I meant. what do you say? what help You're saying that about me? But... (laughs) And when we do that, what we immediately do is close down the interaction, close down the exchange, and we immediately lose all mindfulness. We're back in self, back in protecting our reputations, our agendas, our preconceptions, our stories about what life is, and our life, and all that stuff. And it, it's a wonderful experience, even though it's really difficult to be present and sit with somebody saying something that's difficult, and then at the end just think, okay, I'll take that in. It was, for me, the single most difficult thing in Buddhist teacher training I've ever done. Believe me. You sit there... And you're surrounded by other, you know, teachers, and they're saying, Yeah, so, today, earlier on in the kitchen, you kind of, uh, in the morning, you were kind of, uh, you know, prickly. Kind of a little irritating there. And, uh, you know, I would want to say, I'm not a morning person! You're waking me up at fucking 6 o'clock in the fucking morning! I don't want to wake up! I, don't, I told you I don't want to teach the morning shift. I don't want to be around human beings. I don't even want to fucking see your fucking faces. But you have to say, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for that. Thank you. I'm an asshole in the morning. <laughs> and stay present. And not break the gift that they're giving by interacting and by you know sharing and taking in and becoming vulnerable, the more vulnerable we become, and the, the, the less we wall off, defend our territory, defend our turf, the more uh, other people become open and are be- become willing to soften. And this brings up the fourth point. I, when we, I'm sorry, before I get to that, when we do feel ourselves becoming reactive, defensive, justifying ourselves, explaining, just find that underpinning in the body. There's always this. <laughs> where we just want to it wants to get out. It's like this energy. How dare you, you son of a bitch! Wait till you hear this about you. <laughs> you know, and it's this energy that wants to like. <laughs> Come and vomit out. It looks like this flood. Right? <coughs> oh yeah, you think that way to hear this? <laughs> that
1: must have been pretty. Good at. Uh, <laughs>
0: but see, we can catch that that energy and just breathe through it, soften it. See if we can actually hold it, create more space for it. Relax the shoulders, open the chest, soften, breathe out long. Hold that. But, but 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 this is unfair. And see if we can actually create a vessel that can contain it. And uh, finally, the fourth is then when it's t- our turn to talk. We often will go with the sort of agenda we have, the things we want to get accomplished. But if we put that aside, sometimes there'll be what I call background thoughts that are there. Like oh I'm feeling ill-equipped for this conversation. Oh, I sort of wish this would end. I'm feeling com- I'm feeling uncomfortable. Uh, you know, I'm really feeling put upon right now. The things that we sort of never say in conversations. We fight back, but we don't we don't lead with our vulnerability or our sadness or a disappointment and it's really worthwhile to take that risk to verbalize the things that we generally don't talk about our states our inner states you know you know when i hear this i feel or when we talk about this issue i feel you know out of my depth or i feel like i'm never heard or i feel and just talk about that experience that we generally keep from other people be willing to risk opening to not what we want the conversation to look like, but what are those other thoughts that we're concealing? I don't mean the thoughts like, "Oh, you son of a bitch, you're such a blowhard. Fuck. I have to listen to this. That's not really constructive. But the thoughts about how we feel. When we do that, when we risk opening up those background thoughts, those those the, the unrevealed, we actually encourage other people then to get softer and more vulnerable and more uh, available to us. And then the mindfulness and dialogue becomes really interesting, really interesting, because we're now, we're getting past the walls and the procedures and the, How are you doing? I'm doing fine. Great. Great to see you, Bill. Okay. See you later. You know, the performative conversations that absolutely reveal nothing. When we do this, when we actually can open to the vulnerable emotions and experiences of others, it's the most rewarding practice in the world because we no longer feel alone in the world. Until we really get it with our right hemisphere, deeply get it, that we are not alone with our feelings, our fears... Our, our feelings of being overwhelmed, our feelings of not having it together, our feelings that there's something wrong with me, our feelings that we're not going to be able to, you know, accomplish anything, or the things we have accomplished are not good enough, or whatever feelings we're struggling with, until we've really taken in another person sharing those same exact feelings expressing them physically, seeing our truth in another human being, then in some ways until we do that, we really are alone. But when we really make that deep felt connection with others, then that sense of solitude and isolation is broken. And we really understand that we're in a human condition that's not personal and that our suffering is not personal. And that's, such an alleviated, much, much lighter state to the end. So, thank you for listening. I hope there was something worthwhile in there. I'm going to turn this. On.